What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 8 of Citadel of Fear by Gertrude Barrows Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Citadel of Fear. Chapter 8. Before the Black Shrine. Archer Kennedy was, as Boots had once observed, a man of more refined education than the Irish lad. Moreover, he had a quick, furtive mind that snatched at whatever came its way and hoarded it as a jackdaw hoards its stealings, on a bare chance that it might some day prove practically useful. Stored among many such smatterings, was a fair knowledge of Aztec antiquities, picked up partly in his college days, partly at close range in Yucatan and Campeche. When Bjornsson had said, You are housed in the seat of Nakakyautl, the words had not been quite meaningless to him. In the tangled mazes of old Aztec theology, many a god possessed not only two or more names, but as many personalities some of them as divergent from one another as black from white. So Tezcatlipoca, shining mirror, who descended from heaven at the end of a spider's thread, was a being of most virtuous and commendable qualities. Justice and mercy were his to administer, and if his enshrined idolans sometimes presided from judgment seats made of piled human bones, this was in accordance with the rather grim ideas of a grim and bloody people. But, like the well-known Dr. Jekyll, Tezcatlipoca had a double nature, and a nature, moreover, of which the second and darker face might have caused even Mr. Hyde to cover his reprehensible head in shame and jealousy. As Nakakyautl, creator of hatreds, the virtuous Tezcatlipoca was accustomed to steal invisible through the streets, and in every Aztec city there were seats placed for his convenience seats in which no mortal man was allowed to seek repose. It seems improbable that any man would care to, considering who might be his companion there. A temple consecrated to Nakakyautl as an individual deity, however, was an innovation of which Kennedy had never heard. On encountering a dark face in a darker niche, he did not promptly comment, "'Here is exactly what I would have expected to find, the carved black image of Nakakyautl, an idol which these pale-hued and foolishly superstitious Indians are no doubt silly enough to worship. Instead of making this sensible remark, he not only failed to identify the face, but unconsciously yielded to it a more sincere and wholehearted worship than had probably come its way in many centuries. His much-prized reasoning faculty went to sleep, as it were, while whatever Kennedy had for a soul basked in fascinated contemplation of its unacknowledged ideal. Alert, stealthy, desirous, ruthless, all that the secret soul would be, the face was, 
and raised, moreover, to the nth and ultimate power. But rapture, in this decidedly imperfect world, was proverbially of short duration. The minor priests and acolytes of Nakak Yadl, entering the rotunda with solemn tread, could not know that their deity was receiving the perfect worship of a real devotee. They themselves were rather shy of offering that perfect worship. In fact, the countenance of Nakak Yaotl, or rather of his idolon, was seldom looked upon by his cautious sons. But, like other men, they had some inescapable duties. The affair before them now was of minor importance, the captive being only a poor little specimen of a Yaqui Indian, strayed north in the hills and half-witted from fright, but nonetheless must be gone through with. Topiltsen, head of the guild and chief priest of the mysteries, had not deigned to attend. In consequence, some fancier touches of ceremony might be dispensed with, and Markazuma, officiating as Topiltsen's understudy, rather hoped to be through with it in time to attend a banquet given that night by the sons of Tlapot Lazanan, mother of healing. Like members of that guild the world over, the men of medicine were a pleasant lot, with a goodly collection of amusing jests and tales at their tongue-tips. Under his breath, Markazuma cursed his superior for shoving all the drudgery onto his shoulders so that he had little time for pleasure. He cursed again and more earnestly when the staff of the standard-like insignia he bore caught behind the golden claw-foot of a throne and wrenched the standard fairly out of his hand. Such an accident in the temple's very sanctum was an omen of direst import. As the standard clattered to the pavement, a shudder and muttering ran through the length of the plumed line behind him, and, as if in sympathy, the hounds of the marsh, silent hitherto, set up a low, concerted howling. With a nervous glance for them, Markazuma recovered his standard. To his increased dismay, the white and black feathers at its tip had dipped in the mire of the marsh and become seriously draggled. They were sacred feathers, not to be touched by bare human fingers, and he had to carry them on as they were, dripping slow black drops that ran down his hand and arm. He resumed his dignified pacing toward the shrine, but with thoughts effectually distracted from the banquet. He was a very young man to have reached the position he held, and Topiltsen had of late showed a disposition to find fault on that score, and because of a certain impediment in his assistant's speech, two defects which Markazuma certainly could not help. But when his chief heard of this night's carelessness, he guessed what might happen. Sidewise, he glanced at the hounds again and shivered. The clatter of the standard, however, had brought dismay to another heart than his. It woke Kennedy as from a dream. He started, looked over his shoulder, and caught a glimpse through the mist of nodding plumes. Fear came back with a rush, reason roused, and all his brief content was gone in an instant. Not only were the people almost upon him, but he realized that he had been perceiving without light. The walls of his universe shook again at a thought, and though still drawn by the face he was also unutterably afraid of it. He actually considered diving head foremost among the reeds and hiding there, in preference to the niche but a wolf-like head thrust out from behind two clumps of bushes promised such an instant disaster that he took the second of two bad choices, shut his eyes tight, and lunged forward into the recess.
one step, two steps, three, and his outstretched hands came in contact with other hands. They neither yielded nor grasped at him. They were cold, smooth, polished as the marble walls outside. They were clasped around two rounded, polished knees. A statue. The thing in the niche was only a statue. He opened his eyes and discovered that he could see with them. With his eyes, not his soul. Just see. The niche was not half so dark as he had thought. What a fool he had been to let that idea of perception without light get a grip on him. This was a statue, an idol, of course, and though black, the highly polished surface had caught gleams from the marsh. True, the face of it was not one-tenth as clear to him now as it had been, but doubtless that could be laid to the change in their relative positions. Outside, the feet were still coming on, slow, ominous, inevitable as the tread of fate, but Kennedy found himself smiling. He felt the relief of one who has snatched victory from defeat. Having been deceived into thinking he saw a demon by its own dark light, why might not the other, apparently irreconcilable ideas he had of this place, its people, turn out to be equally deceptive? Finding a narrow space behind the statue, he slid hastily into it and crouched there. Good old idol, he muttered, and patted Nakak Ya'atl's adamantine polished shoulder. Into his range of vision, very slowly, there stalked a tall figure, plumed headdress nodding to each step. Its feather mantle was long and gorgeous. It bore a staff crowned with a human skull, above which a bedraggled spray of feathers dripped miry water into the skull's hollow sockets. The face of the standard-bearer was more hideous than the skull, for it was extravagantly beast-like and striped with bars of white, black, and gold. But again the hidden man smiled. He had seen devil-masks like that before. They were common enough at every Indian ceremony. This leading figure he placed easily in his universe, a priest of the sacrifice. An Indian priest. He must remember that and never let fancy play tricks on his keen intelligence. Now the priest halted and set up his standard in a socket prepared for that purpose in the floor by the central font. Kennedy, peering over the idol's shoulder, observed that not once did the man so much as glance into the niche, but kept his back consistently toward it. Two torch-bearers, dressed like the first-comer but a bit less splendidly, were next to appear. They too presented only their backs to the shrine, and having lighted the ten candles before it, they passed on out of sight. Markazuma knew, but Kennedy could not, that they went to take their places on two of the thrones. All the thrones must be filled before the ceremony might proceed, but Markazuma was no longer impatient. Another pair of his followers advanced, escorting the captive. That unfortunate, whose naked brown hide was marked with scarcely healed wounds very similar to those borne by Kennedy's trailmate, was then lifted, laid in the basin of the central font, and secured there with ropes of agave fiber. Markazuma watched through the eye-holes of his wooden mask. When the yaki writhed, moaning through his gag, the young priest shivered with sympathy. The sympathy was for himself, not the yaki. 
his prophetic eye saw the form of Markazuma lying in that identical basin. Topilzen was not a tolerant chief, and when he learned of that very bad omen... The captive's escort had left him and gone on. Several pairs of figures stalked solemnly past the niche without stopping. Then one lone acolyte, a boy by his stature, clothed in white and wearing a white mask, came and took his stand opposite to the officiating priest. With that the procession ceased to march, for all the others who formed it had enthroned themselves, and the circle being complete, Markazuma might take up his duties. Of all the ceremonies that Kennedy had ever witnessed, and he had seen quite a number, that was the strangest. In the first place there was none of the singing, chanting, or dancing inseparably connected with barbaric ritual elsewhere. In the second, the thrones being out of Kennedy's range, the only audience visible to him was formed of the marsh-hounds. All told there were probably a dozen of the great white dogs, and they came out of their radiant jungle to the curb's very edge. Eyes fixed on the central font, they crouched with quivering flanks in an eagerness which to Kennedy seemed well understandable. Here, he thought, we learn how the hounds of Telepolan are fed. And he was very glad to crouch safely behind the old black idol. Well-trained brutes, those dogs, though. Man-eaters, he was sure now. They had allowed a possible dinner in his own person to pass them safely. Having their master's command, doubtless to stay within the marsh's boundaries, there they had remained, hungry or not. The body of the little yaki would hardly go round among that ravenous-looking dozen. He wondered if it would be tossed to them living or slain first. He recalled that in the Aztec's time of glory, when human sacrifices were made by thousands, the victim's living heart was invariably cut out with an obsidian knife and offered to the god. So far, however, save in the matter of costume, nothing of the present ceremony conformed to those old customs. The fonts themselves did not remotely resemble the curved sacrificial stone over which a victim was bent conveniently backward, exposing his chest to the knife. Having stood motionless for at least five minutes, the priest and his young acolyte stirred at last. The smaller figure sidled backward toward the presiding idolon. Because of the candles, the niche was by no means so dark as it had been, and Kennedy promptly ducked out of sight. For several minutes he dared not peer out again. He heard a low, mumbling voice, that blurred the musical accents of the native language, rather as if the speaker had no teeth. It rumbled on and on, till at last Kennedy peered cautiously round Nakakya Otto's protruding marble ribs. He needn't have hidden. The acolyte had barely crossed the dividing line between black floor and white ledge. His back was still turned, and he stood with arms rigidly outstretched like a human cross. He gave an odd impression of being set there as a guard as a guard to withhold something from coming out of that niche. But the black god never stirred. How may stone move of its own volition? And the man behind it smiled sneeringly. He wasn't afraid of the old black thing. He patted its ribs. The high polish of them felt almost like live skin that writhed a little under his fingers, 
but he could never be deceived again. Stone was stone. Peering under the acolyte's outstretched arm, he could see the officiating priest, who stood before the font with its captive and was speaking across it. His mumbled remarks might have been addressed to the attentive canine audience in the marsh, but more likely he was speaking to no one in particular, just going through some silly, empty ritual. Ending at last, he stooped to a great golden vessel and withdrew from its depths several smaller vessels, also of gold. One of them was flask-shaped, carved all over with writhing, lizard-like forms, and fitted with a crystal stopper. The others were small jars of plain gold. The officiating priest set them out on a kind of ledge that projected behind the font's basin. Then he stood motionless, hands stretched above the captive as if in blessing or consecration. Silence settled in the rotunda, so that Kennedy could hear his own heart beating, and also a faint gasping sound that came from the gagged victim. Then the priest's hands dropped with startling suddenness. He wheeled, made one lightning-swift genuflection toward the niche, and had his back to it again before Kennedy could even think of dodging from sight. When was this mummery to be done with? Immediately it appeared. With the air of a man who gets down to business at last, the priest drew on a gauntleted glove he had carried in his girdle, a glove that gleamed yellow as flexible, soft gold opened one of the golden jars, sniffed its contents testingly, dipped his gloved fingers in the stuff, whatever it was, and began swiftly anointing the yaki's naked body. The man writhed in his bonds, but whether from pain or fright, Kennedy had no means of knowing, and, to do him justice, did not particularly care. The priest worked swiftly. He might be too young, as Topiltzen hinted, he might be possessed of faulty vocal organs and of a not-quite-pleasant personal appearance, but none could deny him a deafness unequaled by any man of the guild. Would Topiltzen consider that? He set the empty jar aside and took up the flask. As at a signal, the dogs that watched him pointed their noses straight upward, and once more a long, doleful howl ascended to the opal-lined dome and was echoed dully back. Markazuma started nervously. Twice now had the white hounds howled, the white, silent hounds, whose loudest utterance had ever been a low snarling, and that only in heat of combat. Unlucky indeed was the night. Flask in hand, he hesitated, wondering if Topiltzen would blame him more for continuing the ceremony or breaking off in the middle. Then he shrugged. In either case, as he saw it, his doom was sealed. Two such omens in one night. He tugged at the flask stopper, which stuck. But it always did, so that could hardly be counted as a third sign. He got it out at last, and without further pause poured forth the contents in a glittering stream over the writhing form of the living man in the font. It was a violet-tinted liquid with a strong odor like bitter almonds, and as it touched the yaki's quivering skin it spread out thinly. It spread as oil does on water, swiftly, almost one would have said intelligently, so that in less than a minute the Indian's brown hide was entirely coated with a thin purplish film. 
This seemed a novel way of preparing a man to be torn in pieces by beasts. Kennedy watched intently. The ceremony proceeded. Omens or no omens, Markazuma was an expert at this task and he carried it through unfalteringly, without a slip from start to finish. But near the rite's completion a scandalous interruption occurred. For a man, a gasping, pallid, fear-sick wreck of a man, plunged shudderingly out of the niche with its hidden god, brushed the acolyte aside, and began to run staggeringly along the curved edge of the marsh. He was caught and held by the astonished occupant of the first throne he tried to pass, while for the third time that night the white hounds howled dolefully. But Markazuma, startled beyond measure, nevertheless sent up a silent prayer of gratitude. No wonder that there had been signs and omens in the temple. Even Tolpiltzen could hardly blame him now. The mystery of mystery had been spied upon, the very shrine desecrated, and Markazuma almost swelled visibly with the story that he had for Topiltzen's ear. But Archer Kennedy, who had for once done a fellow being a very good turn, would have scarcely appreciated the fact had he known it. A sign and an omen there had been indeed for him that night. He had seen the thing that Bjornson, in the first days of his captivity, had prayed God to make not so, or at least to let him forget. Kennedy did not pray, but had his captors slain him forthwith he would have welcomed the stroke. The walls of his universe had crashed down at last, and when, with blows and curses, he was dragged from the rotunda, he cared not at all whither they were taking him, just so it was away from that which now lay quivering in the font before Nakakya-Atl's somber den. End of chapter 8「Nine of Citadel of Fear by Gertrude Barrows Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Citadel of Fear Chapter 9 Maxatla Speaks Though unobserved by Boots, when the canoe was dragged to the galley side, two other events took place simultaneously with its capture. Far away at the end of the black cliff, a boat rushed out of some invisible harbor, propelled by six oarsmen of such unusual muscle that the heavy vessel seemed fairly to leap from the water at every stroke. And nearer at hand, another galley, heading leisurely toward Tanathiutl, suddenly diverted its course and swept down toward the master priest's craft. The prow of this second galley bore a strange figurehead, the reared body of a gigantic serpent crested with feathers like a heron, a collar of plumes about its golden neck. Boots looked straight up to Topiltzen's leering face. The lesser priestlings had left their postures of adoration and crowded to the side, threatening hands outstretched to drag on board the insulters of their chief. The Irishman did not wait to be dragged. A kneeling position in a light canoe is impossible to spring from, but reaching up, he got handhold on some massive carving under the galley's bulwark. That was enough. He came over the side, agile as a sailor, leaving the girl in a madly rocking but uncapsized canoe. Topiltzen, confronted by an unexpectedly aggressive foe, tried to retreat, 
tripped over his own flowing mantle, and a moment later was clasped tight to Boot's breast. It had all happened too quickly for interference, but now the under-priests closed in, and down the vessel's length the stalwart rowers dropped their blades and came surging toward the bow in a jostling mob. Boot swung the fat, kicking little man in his arms toward the side. A stout girdle held the white and black emblem about Topiltsen's middle, and it offered a grip. The master-priest of Nakak Ya'atl suddenly found himself dangling in mid-air above the silver flood, while a great voice shattered the hushed quiet of Talapalan. "'Get back! Get back, the whole pack of you! Or down he goes!' Even to those who could not understand the words, Boot's meaning was unmistakable. It brought them all to a stand. Topiltsen squeaked like a rabbit. Though the girdle had cut off his wind, he prayed that it might hold. Swimming was little good to a man when Tanathiu charged the waters with heatless fire. "'Cast off that iron!' Boots indicated the canoe with a bob of his parrot-crested head. The man who grasped the light cable attached to the grappling iron hesitated, and looked toward the priests for orders. One of them shook his head slightly. "'Cast off!' roared Boots, and lowered his captive a foot nearer the water. The threat should have been effective, but it wasn't. Not a man stirred or spoke, and Boots had a sudden creepy doubt that he had been shouting at phantoms. The shadows were all wrong. The sky was under him. He faced a throng of weird, silent, feather-decked ghosts and threatened to drop the chief of them into the sky. No, that was no ghost in his hands. It was too heavy. But why did none of them move or answer him? Boots blinked and cast a wild glance outward, seeking the solidity of the hills to restore his mental balance. Then the loop of a rope dropped over his head and shoulders. That little event had been what they were waiting for. No bodiless phantoms ever rushed in on a victim with such a weight of flesh and strength of brawn. Unfortunately for Topiltsen, however, the caster of that rope had miscalculated. He had meant to jerk the stranger so suddenly inboard that the master-priest would come with him, but quick though a man may be, it is easier to relax muscles than to flex them. As the rope touched his chest, Boot let go, and with one gurgling cry, the priest splashed and vanished in the light beneath. But on the quarter-deck poor Boots was hopelessly outnumbered. Undermanned to start with, his arms encumbered by the rope, he had not the shadow of a chance and at the end of a brief struggle he rose, a bound and battered prisoner grasped on either side by one of the stalwart crew. Worse still, as the press cleared away from about him, he saw a bedraggled figure hauled over the bulwark by a dozen solicitous hands. It was Topiltsen, and though he promptly subsided on the deck, he was unquestionably alive. In the midst of defeat, Boots grinned. He knew from personal experience that the master-priest had at least endured a punishment he would not forget in a hurry. And just at that moment, while the attention of all was focused on the prisoner and on the limp and furious Topiltsin, there came one long, splintering crash. Every oar in the starboard bank smashed to flinders, as the galley of the feathered serpent ploughed ruthlessly alongside. Nakak Ya'atl's followers turned to meet the rush of a wave of silent assailants. They came leaping across the bulwark, leaving the serpent-headed craft to drift or stay as it might, 
and fell upon the startled defender so suddenly that the latter were almost driven over the side in a body. Two or three did go over, but no one was bothering to offer a rescue then. Battle swept up and down the galley, along the rowers' seats, in the open way between them, an indiscriminate whirl of interlocked limbs, flying plumes, and fierce white faces. Boots' two guards were lost in the melee, and he made frantic efforts to break his bonds. Though unable to distinguish attackers from attacked, it was a most glorious shindy, and he longed to plunge into it. But for once in his life he found he must watch a fight and take no part in it. In despair of freedom he at last resigned himself to look on in silent admiration. Silent! It suddenly struck him that here was the most remarkable battle ever fought. They were all silent, save for the thud of blows, the crash of broken boat-seats, or an occasional splash when some unfortunate descended into the spirit of Tanathiu, there was not a sound. No yells, no groans, no battle-cries. And no weapons, either. It was hand to throat and fist to body, with never a sword or spear to grace it. But they were men, the Telapalans. Surrender was not in them. Until hammered into insensibility or driven over the side, they would fight, and since both galleys had carried about the same complement, and they equally matched in sinew and stubbornness, the combat promised an indefinite duration. And so it might have been, save for an unexpected intervention from without. Up over the stern they came, white, stark, and terrible. They wore no plumes, those six. Their height required no headdress to increase it. Towering head and shoulders above the tallest fighter there, the galley warriors were as children before them. Some, blind with rage, attempted to face the mighty onset, but the majority knew better. When the giant guardians of the hills took the field, lesser men stood out of their path, or perished. In this case short work was made of the resisters. Where a man was struck down, there he lay, and in a very few minutes peace reigned aboard the galley of Nakak Yaatl. Then, and not till then, Boots remembered the girl. In the press of exciting events she had clean slipped from his mind, and when, with a start of self-reproach, he at last turned to look for her, the canoe was gone. Moreover, he discovered that the battle had been by no means without spectators. Very much as in more ordinary cities, the crowds will gather to watch a fight, so the lake craft had swarmed in until the contending galleys were almost entirely surrounded. They were very quiet about it, though. There was something almost stealthy in the silent, eager curiosity of these innumerable faces that thronged the decks and peered from every available vantage point. In that still water the serpent galley had drifted only a few feet from her victim, and by the time Boots' attention returned to them most of her crew who were able had sprung lightly back aboard. The six gigantic peacemakers were advancing toward the quarter-deck, followed by a limping and disheveled crowd, and among them were three figures which Boots immediately recognized. The group which presently gathered about the Irishman was a curiously assorted one. There was Tolpiltsen, still a survivor, but one mass of cuts and bruises, and with none of his finery left save the white and black emblem. There were six white giants of proportions which Boots could only view with envious admiration. There was the Moth Girl, 
who with two of the others had come aboard in the peacemaker's wake. She had picked her way daintily through the wreckage, and now beamed upon her red-haired protégé from the arm of a tall, stern young man, whose headdress of a crested serpent proclaimed him one of the invaders. There was also Sven Bjornsson, his neat modern clothes giving a touch of the theatrical to all the rest. And last there was the gentleman who had returned into Nakakyaatl's temple for the dread of the White Lake. Coatless, shirt half torn off, and his arms bound behind him, Archer Kennedy looked as if he had been through the wars himself. But his spirit seemed to have suffered the worst shock. His lips twitched continually, his whole body shook in spasms of trembling like a nervous horse, and he met Boots half-amused, half-resigned, "'You too, Mr. Kennedy,' with a blank, unrecognizing stare. "'Well,' began Bjornsson, his marred face grim and angry, "'I see that you have recovered from your wounds enough to be about, O'Hara.' "'I've had the evening of me life. Did you find Zalatl?' "'We did,' was the stern retort. But before he could say more, the wreck which had been Topilt's in broke in with a torrent of low-voiced accusation. At least Boots judged it to be accusation, though to him it was no more intelligible than the scolding of an angry sparrow. Presently he said something that the moth-girl appeared to resent. With flushed cheeks and flashing eyes she broke into the stream with a few remarks of her own. The young man beside her took it up, and they all talked at once with the energy and indifference to polite usage common among very angry people the world over. The only word Boots understood was Zolotl, and that was tossed from mouth to mouth with significant frequency. Bjornsson began cutting in with placative intent, but his sole success was in diverting a large share of the indignation to himself. At last, as he threw up his hands in despair, one of the six giants who had been grinning in the background with distinctly human amusement strode forward and uttered a curt sentence. Argument ceased. Even Topiltsen, who, red with fury, had been shaking his fist in Bjornsson's very face, subsided instantly. As an arbiter, Boots thought the giant admirably successful, but Bjornsson did not seem to share the opinion. He turned away with an air of dejection which flared into bitterness as he came face to face with the Irishman. "'You are responsible for this,' he accused. "'In two hours, O'Hara, you have wrecked the consummation of five years of faithful effort.' "'Why, Mr. Bjornsson, what harm did I do?' protested Boots. "'The jailer lad wasn't hurt to speak of, except maybe in his failings, and as for the little lady, we only took a bit of a ride on the lake. You can ask herself.' "'I don't need to ask herself. If civil war is the result of tonight's work, you are the one primarily responsible. Quetzalcoatl rules the lake. Nakakyaatl, the surrounding shores. There has always been an undercurrent of rivalry and hard feeling. Why, in the past years, the guardians, who are chosen from all the guilds and are neutral by oath, have shed more blood policing Talapalan than in keeping the hills free of invasion. For years I have been trying to patch up the quarrel. I thought that I had succeeded when the guild of Quetzalcoatl consented that the daughter of their master-priest should marry the son of Topiltsen, priest of Nakakyaatl. But naturally, when she appeared on the lake with a stranger who wore Zalatl's garments of honor, Topiltsen was wild. 
wasn't it enough for you to half kill the boy without disgracing him? He swears he will never show his face on the lake again. And to crown the insult, you dropped his father overboard, and for reasons best known to herself, the young lady signaled a galley of Quetzalcoatl to offer you a violent rescue. Now she declares her intention to marry my lord Maxatla, the captain of that galley, and Topiltsen is willing that she should. He says that Zolotl has been dishonored, and no child of his shall ever mate with a daughter of the feathered serpent. He says that reconciliation is impossible, and I very much fear he is right. That is the sum total of your evening's pleasure, young man, and I hope you are satisfied with it." Boots, who was trying to look properly overcome, just then caught the moth-girl's eye. There was a twinkle in it that he found irresistible. Yes, grin. Bjornson's exasperation was complete. Trust an Irishman to think civil war delightfully amusing. Confound you! I might have known by the color of your hair. But, Mr. Bjornson, Boots stopped. A certain lovely young troublemaker had used him ruthlessly for her own ends, and he was not too stupid to see it. He rather suspected that this sudden affair with my lord Maxotla was not half so sudden as it seemed. That careless offer of hers to marry Boots, perhaps, had been mere bait to keep interested one in whom she foresaw a glorious casus belli with her loathed fiancé's entire guild. Well, she had got her wish, and her love as well, for Maxotla did not look the man to give up his sweetheart lightly once promised. But Boots could not defend himself on those lines. The inbred chivalry of him forbade it. "'You saved my life,' snapped Bjornson, as if that were an added grievance. "'I tried to help you in return, but this night's work is too much. You and Kennedy are a pair. You are both forfeit to Nakakyaudl. He, because he was caught prying into the most sacred of mysteries, you for offering violence to the body of Topiltsen. Let them take you. My intervention is finished." A gleam of satisfaction came into the master-priest's small eyes, but the moth-girl whispered a word to her young captain. He nodded, then, with a slight bow to the guardians, came forward and laid a hand on the bound Irishman's shoulder. My lord Svend, he said with stern dignity, I believe that the feathered serpent is still supreme in Telepolan. I claim this man in his name. He was wrongfully made prisoner while defending a daughter of Quetzalcoatl from the insults and violence of those who have no place on these waters save by tolerance. Under their oath to uphold the law, I call upon the guardians to support my intention. This man is Quetzalcoatl's. Let any son of Nakakyaotl lay hand on him at his peril." Bjornson frowned, but anxiety again had the upper hand of irritation. It had not been revealed to Boots exactly what position the man held in this unusual community, where the most common passions and rivalries of the human race were enacted against a background so weird and strange that it seemed only to be accounted for on a basis of the supernatural. But whatever his influence, it was sufficient in this case to avert the hostilities which Maxatla's challenge had threatened to reopen. Lord Maxatla, he answered, no man has a higher respect for the feathered serpent than I. I spoke too hastily out of anger, but this is not a matter to be settled here. 
Will it satisfy you if both prisoners are held, and their cases decided before the Council of Guilds, as was first intended?" "'Held in the power of Nakak Yaudl?' demanded the other scornfully. "'No!' "'Held in personal charge by the Guardians,' substituted Bjornsson patiently. "'They will do this thing, I believe, for the sake of peace in Telapalan. "'You are right, my lord Svend.' The giant who had spoken before pushed Mxatla gently but firmly aside and laid his own enormous hand on Boots. This is for the Council to decide. We, guardians of the hills and keepers of the peace of Telapalan, take these two prisoners in our keeping. Do I speak well, my brothers?" "'You speak well,' confirmed his five companions, and their voices, soft and murmurous as the night wind, carried a decision that no man there dared question. In a fold of the hills, a dim twilight valley where the verdure grew scant and starved between scattered boulders, a group of men had halted. Though the sky was black above, the valley was greyly visible in what seemed a perpetual and never-growing dawn. It was the light of invisible Telapalan, reflected and diffused from the rocks at the valley's entrance. Scarcely an hour had elapsed since the prisoners passed into the Guardian's charge. Carried ashore in the latter's low black boat, instead of being escorted to another prison, they were brought here. After disembarking, the whole company turned their faces to the hills, and only halted again when shut from the glittering lake by the walls of this desolate valley. There was a foreboding of secret evil in the manner of all their keepers. By Bjornsson's first words, the suspicion was no idle one. "'You saved my life, O'Hara. But I would rather have died than seen this feud reopened. You think it a light matter. A few lives lost, perhaps, and a few heads broken. The sort of riot-play you Irish delight in. But Donnybrook Fair is not so far from Telepolan as the way of its people from your ways.' Nakakiatl has horrors in command beyond all thinking by one who has not seen his power. The feathered serpent will fight fire with fire, and even the lesser guilds control forces that, if turned loose on the world, might almost wreck civilization. Only the delicate counterbalance of power and certain religious traditions have kept Telapalan from long ago destroying itself. But I know that Nakakiatl grows restive. Nakak Yaotl, continued Bjornsson in a changed voice, would dwell in peace with the other gods, and to drive him into anger is folly. Therefore, you, O'Hara, must leave Telapalan. Quetzalcoatl has no possible claim on your mate, and the council will give him up to the priests whose mysteries he has pried into. But over you there would surely be fighting. Young Maxatla stands high in our guild and having once claimed you, he will never draw back. So you must escape tonight, friend O'Hara. Will you believe me when I say that to save these adopted people of mine, and to prevent another possible thing I can't speak of, I would condemn myself as readily as you? You will be taken blindfold far out into the desert, left so bound that by effort you may free yourself, and the rest will be between you and the drifting sands. Food and drink? If you can find them. Goodbye, O'Hara, and though you won't believe it, I am sorry." 
Goodbye,' said Boots curtly, and, as he felt himself gripped by two of his warders, he turned to go without another word of farewell. But at that Kennedy came to life with a sudden vain leap against the hands that instantly restrained him. Struggling desperately, he called after his mate as he had called in the desert, his voice like a wailing cry. "'Don't leave me, Boots! Don't leave me with these fiends! If you leave me, it will be worse than murder! Worse, do you understand? I will tell you what I saw! I will tell you!' The cry died as a heavy hand closed over his mouth, and he could only watch with agonized eyes as his mate was led helplessly away. End of chapter 9《Chapter Ten of Citadel of Fear by Gertrude Barrows Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Citadel of Fear. Chapter Ten. The First Visitation. Cleona, my dear, tis a quaint-looking present I've brought you, but they do say it's worth a power of money for its rarity. The value I put on it, though, is another sort. There's a tale behind it so wild I not tell it to even you, little sister, lest you think me a liar of outrageous imaginations." Cullen O'Hara passed his fingers reflectively over the polished bit of colored porcelain in his hand. Fifteen years had elapsed since first he set eyes on it, when his trailmate had lifted it down from the bracket in Bjornsson's hacienda. Those years had left no mark on the porcelain godling, but they had wrought their inevitable changes in the man. The face that at twenty was broadly good-humoured was good-humoured still. But the blurred lines of youth had set to a deeper firmness, the lips could be stern as well as smiling, and the light blue kindly eyes were capable of flaring into anger as intolerant as was promised by the red thatch of hair above them. In both size and appearance the contrast between the man and the girl he had just addressed was striking to the point of absurdity. Cullen's height missed the seven-foot mark by a bare four inches, while Cleona O'Hara Rhodes, his younger married sister, measured no more than five feet five. Her raven's wing hair shadowed eyes that were wonderfully blue. From beneath straight, fine brows the lashes curved thick and long. And her skin had the tint of one of those small seashells that are like smooth new ivory, shading to a center so delicate that to call it pink is almost desecration say rather, angel-color. Yet a resemblance to her brother might have been traced in the girl's generous forehead, the carriage of her head, and certain inbred mannerisms of speech and gesture. Since the death of her parents, when Cleona was a very small child, this huge rugged man had been her whole family and sole guardian. Many of those years he had spent world-wandering, yet he had ever kept in touch with his little sister, given her a convent education, and to this day she had all the love of his great, affectionate heart. Now they sat together on a stone bench, in the gardens that surrounded her bungalow home at Carpentier, a small suburb just within the wide-flung boundary-line of a city in the eastern part of the United States. As he fell silent, she tapped an impatient foot on the gravel path. Had I guessed where you were up to when you left me six months ago, Colin, I should have kept you here or gone after you. Ah, now, he protested, am I not back safe and sound? Twas for that very reason I said nothing of it. With you just married and all, would I be sporting your honeymoon with anxieties? Not that the danger was worth speaking of, 
but I guessed how you'd fret. And this journey was one I've had in the back of my head a many years. Always there's been one thing or another risen to prevent. It seemed like fate was set against in ever learning the truth of the matter. And now... Now I'm less sure than before I went if twas all a dream and a fevered vision or a sober reality. Tell me the story. Cleona took the porcelain quetzalcoatl in her hands and examined it curiously. Though about it there was an indefinable look of age, its unglazed, polished enamel might have left the potter's hands but yesterday. From the delicately indicated embroidery of the tunic to the minute scaling of the serpent-headed staff it held, it was an exquisite bit of craftsmanship. The flat, benignant face eyed her with a kind of patient stoicism that brought a smile to Cleona's lips. "'Poor little idle man,' she said whimsically. "'Are all your worshippers dead and gone? Tell me the story, Colin.' "'If I do, you'll neither repeat it to another nor think it a fabrication?' "'Colin!' "'I know. But when I've finished, you may call in me in another tone, my dear.' "'It strains my own belief to think of it. And I'm not sure, not sure at all, to go back and find naught but a lake so deep there was no fathoming it, to find but the ruins of the hacienda, and they so overgrown one could scarcely identify them, and only certain scars I bear to this day, and the bit of image you hold in your hands, as an evidence that was not quite all a delusion. They, and the name of Sven Bjornsson. He was once living, for I looked up the history of him. Sometimes I do think that I was sickening of the fever when we came to that valley, that poor Kennedy died of it there in the Norseman's house, and myself escaped Bjornsson's care to stray back to the desert, naked and raving as I was, when some friendly Mayas found me and took me to their village. Twas many a week before I was a man again, and then I was in the hospital at Vera Cruz. I'd never have known how I got there had not Richards, the American ornithologist who brought me in with his party, left word with the hospital authorities before he took ship for home. And I had no money and no friends. I worked in the streets at cleaning and the like to keep body and soul together, and was so ate up with worry for you, who was but a babe, and me with naught but an empty blessing to send those who had care of you, that I nigh went crazy before I got a paying job. Could I go back then, I ask you? I never left a mate in trouble before nor since, but poor Kennedy, may the saints have helped him, must have been a dead man long before I was on me feet again. That is, if the heft of it happened at all. Like a dream it was to me, and yet with a differ betwixt it and the dreams of the delirium. Twas all so clear and bright-coloured and bright-like. The little man in your hands is no clearer to your eyes than was the sight of Telepalan to mine. Telepalan? Telepalan! Ah, you strange bright city! Do you really lie ruined at the bottom of that black lake, or were you the fancy of a favour? Cullen, that's no way at all to tell a story. Begin at the first, not the last. Now who was this Sven Bjornsson, and who was Kennedy? For the last, a man I picked up in Campeche on the Gulf. The both of us were on the gold trail. At least, I thought I was ready for it, though I was a raw, green boy then. All this happened a matter of fifteen years ago, you must understand. I knew little then of the tricks of that hunt, and the half of what I knew being false information. But this Mr. Kennedy, he was a man of fine education, 
and with some dozen years the better of me in age and experience. He was wanting a mate for a desperate hard trip, with the yellow stuff to be picked up off the ground, so he said at the end of it, "'Be off there, Snookums dog! You've untied my shoelace again!' He paused to kick very gently at Cleona's bull pup, which retaliated by dashing upon the other shoe with great enthusiasm. Cleona caught the pup in her arms and gave him an admonitory pat. As she set him down again, the puppy tore off up the path to fling himself recklessly against the legs of a young man advancing along it. The newcomer swept Cleona into his arms with an abandoned disregard for O'Hara's presence, which caused that gentleman to frown disapprovingly. "'Tony, my lad, I can see you've no more an idea of the behavior of a dignified husband than you had when I left you.' Anthony Rhodes released his wife and turned a delighted countenance to her brother. When Cleona phoned me, I dropped everything and made for the train. His hand met Cullen's in a long, friendly pressure. We thought you had dropped clean off the earth, old man, till we had that postal from Texas. On this afternoon in June, luncheon was served in the glass and screen enclosed veranda, a place of yellow lights and many comfortable chairs. Thence one could look out onto a prospect of green lawns, flowering bushes, and between the trees, down and across Llewellyn Creek to delectable vistas, part forest, part open meadows beyond. The bungalow itself stood on the crest of a hill, and was so surrounded by trees that only in winter could one hope for any general view of its outer architecture. "'Cleona,' said Rose, while they lingered over the coffee-cups, "'would you and Cullen care for a trip to the capital tomorrow?' He had given up trying to extract any satisfactory account of his brother-in-law's recent journeyings, and, surmising that he might have some good reason for reticence, had good-naturedly dropped the subject. "'I am to have a talk with Senator Dobson in connection with a new insurance law he's pushing through in the special session. He has promised me an interview as representative of my firm and several others. It's a business trip, of course, but when I heard Cullen was back, I thought we might run over in the car, all three of us, and make a sort of pleasure jaunt of it." His wife hesitated, then shook her head. "'Do you and Cullen go. Later, I'll drive with you all you please, but I've had enough of chasing the moon for a while, and my house is not yet in order.' They would start the following morning. Cullen's luggage had been brought up from the station, and while Cleona insisted on personally packing her two men's suitcases, the man in question sallied forth to give the car a thorough overhauling, dubiously assisted by David, man of all work. And so Cullen's story remained untold, and the afternoon which Cleona had planned to drain with her returned wanderer like a cup of sunshine and summery wine was wasted after the commonplace way of the unforeseeing human mind. How could she know that this was the last such cup this place would offer her? or guess the dark, strange cloud that was so soon to overshadow their pleasant bungalow home. It was three p.m. of the day following, when Mary, the trim and obliging maid whom Cleona justly regarded as a treasure, approached that young housewife with the unmistakable air of one about to ask a favor. "'Please, Mrs. Rhodes, are you having any company this evening?' "'I'm expecting none. Why do you ask?' You promised I might go spend the night with me sister in Chester some day this week, ma'am, and seeing as Mr. Rhodes and Mr. O'Hara is both away, and you not doing no entertaining like, I thought—that this would be a good time for your visit. You may go, Mary, but try to be back tomorrow afternoon. I'll be needing your help then in work I have planned." "'Yes, am 
I'll certain sure be here by lunchtime, and thank you, ma'am." Cleona smiled after the maid's retreating figure. The girl had been with them since they had come to live in the bungalow, and this was the first favor she had asked. Rhodes and Cullen had departed early that morning, but the voluntarily deserted one had kept herself too busy to think much of how lonely she was going to be for practically the first time since her marriage. True, she might phone into the city and persuade one or another of her women friends to come out and spend a night at the bungalow, but this she hardly expected to do. With books and fancy work she believed the evening would pass pleasantly enough. The maid's defection, however, was followed an hour later by a more serious interruption to household affairs. The phone rang and a woman's voice asked for Mr. David King. Cleona sent the cook to look for David, who, besides being gardener and garage-man, was ex officio the cook's husband. A few minutes later she was at the telephone, from which he turned with a very white face. "'What is it, David? Has anything happened?' "'Mrs. Rhodes,' the man stopped, took a deep breath, and continued. "'It's my son, George. That—that woman on the phone is a nurse at the city hospital, ma'am. He has fell off a pole, and—' He's bad hurt, she says." He was interrupted by a scream as Marjorie, the cook, fairly flung her husband aside and grasped at the receiver, but the other party had hung up. Cleona had intervened. "'Never mind the phone. David, get your hat. You've just three minutes to catch the 415. There's the whistle now. Run, David. Marjorie, you may take the next train if you like.' For she well knew how dear to the couple was their son who was a hard-working young wireman in the employ of an electrical contractor. David did run and caught the train, for the Carpentier station was almost at the foot of the hill which the bungalow crowned. Then Cleona had her hands full in offering what solace she might to her stricken cook. There was another train at six, and in the meantime David called up, urging his wife to take it and come. He was alarmingly indefinite but the very fact that the hospital authorities had suggested that the boy's mother be sent for told its own story. Marjorie King, good soul, able to consider another even in the midst of grief, urged her young mistress to accompany her and spend the night in town. The bungalow was too lonely. But Cleona hurried her off, assuring her that if she felt in the least nervous she could go and beg the hospitality of a neighbor. As a matter of fact, being as yet only slightly acquainted in the locality, she intended doing nothing of the sort. Left alone, she reflected for a time on the sadness of losing an only son, thanked her stars in innocent selfishness that the hurt man was neither her husband nor brother, and proceeded to get her own supper. By the time the dishes were cleared away and washed, it was after eight and quite dark. Having first turned on all the lights in the front of the house, Cleona seated herself in the living-room beside Rhodes' own particular table with its brown-shaded reading-lamp and took up the knitting on which she was then engaged. The living-room was itself of a comforting and companionable appearance. Even alone in it, Cleona had a pleasant sense that its walls offered a sort of conscious protection. Not that she was really nervous, but this was her first experience of that queer feeling of emptiness that pervades a house at night when deserted by all its customary occupants except one. And the bungalow was entirely isolated in a practical sense, standing as it did among trees at the summit of a quite high hill. Until one came close to it it could not even be seen. 
About ten o'clock she rose, put away her work, and went through the house making sure that the doors and windows were secure, and the burglar alarm system, so far as she could determine, properly set. Outside the night was very still, frosted white by the radiance of a brilliant moon. On an impulse she passed through the enclosed veranda, opened the door and stepped out. The air was pleasant, neither cold nor warm, and scented with the breath of flowers. Slowly she walked around the house, Snookums, her bulldog, bouncing and wriggling before her. In the black shade of the trees the dog was a white shadow, but in the general paleness where the moon struck full he seemed almost to disappear. Indeed, it was as if only the ink-black shadows preserved the world from melting into invisibility. The open meadows overlooked by the hill were pale, wide pools of light. On the path beneath Cleona's feet, the moon, peering through foliage, wrought embroideries of black and white more intricate than any needle had ever traced. The night was absolutely still, so still that the gentle ripple of water reached her ears from Llewellyn Creek, flowing past the foot of the hill. Presently a little wind came and shook the branches over Cleona's head with a sound strangely startling and mysterious, like feet running through the night far away. It is true that there was a great peace upon the world, but it was a peace too coldly colored for Cleona's lonely ease. There was nothing human in it. When she presently returned into the bungalow she was glad of its friendly walls and kindly rooms. Having put Snookums in the kitchen and half-reluctantly turned out the lights, she retired to her bedroom, which, with three others, opened directly off the living-room. The servants' empty quarters were located in a small wing leading by a passage to the kitchen. Shutting and locking her door, she began to brush her hair. And then, at last, the loneliness that had been creeping up on her all evening made its final spring. Cleona stopped suddenly, brush poised in the air. What if... what if... Well, what if what? she demanded aloud, staring at her mirrored reflection as if expecting a reply. Cleona O'Hara Rhodes, shame upon you for a little snivelling coward! What is it you're afraid of? Tell me that now!" The reflection looked back with big, indignant eyes. But the indignation was a sham, roused there to hide a less comfortable emotion, and she well knew it. Unlocking her door she went to the kitchen and called Snookums, who bounded joyfully from his basket in the corner and dashed ahead of her. On returning through the living-room Cleona caught up a small, brightly-colored object in passing, and with a whimsical smile set it besides Rose's automatic pistol on the table by her bed. Let it represent the giver, in whose protecting strength she had such perfect faith. So the eyes of that little heathen god Quetzalcoatl, lord of the air, looked benignantly on as Cleona set her horizons before the shrine of another faith. Snookums had been put to bed on the rug, but once his mistress had definitely retired he improved on the arrangement by jumping on the bed itself and curling up over her feet. Twice she put him off, then yielded to the pup's particular form of bulldog tenacity and let him remain. The house was very empty. She could feel it even through her closed door, and the warmth of the small, live body through the sheet was comforting. Because she knew her nervousness to be mere folly, Cleona drifted off to sleep at last. And all outdoors was drenched in its pallid moon-bath. 
At the foot of the hill Llewellyn Creek ran ripples of ebony and white fire, and where at one point there was a wide slope of treeless lawn, it was as if the turf were powdered with snow. The natural voice of the creek became merged with a distant splashing. The second sound grew louder, nearer. Presently, from the little stream, something came out and up, something almost invisible in that false lucidity of moonlight. Crossing the unshaded turf, it was a vague largeness, wallowing clumsily upward. In the black shade of the trees, it was a white shadow, a white, frightful shadow, too terrible for the right to existence, even in a bad dream. Cleona's sleep was untroubled by dreams, bad or good but from it she was awakened by a frantic sound of barking, and realized that Snookums was bouncing about on the bed like a pup gone mad. He was tugging at the sheet with his teeth, and making racket enough for a dog twice his size. Roused to that temporary super-wakefulness which follows such a night alarm, Cleona sat up. There was in her mind a notion, too, that the pup's barking had been preceded by some other and far different sound. As his mistress roused, Snookums bounded off the bed, rushed to the door, and scratched furiously at the crack beneath it, as if trying to dig under it through the floor. To Cleona but one explanation occurred. Someone had broken into the house, and for a ten-months pup Snookums was proving himself a pretty good watchdog. Cleona snapped on the electric light, picked up the pistol, and—hesitated. She was no coward but neither was she rashly indiscreet. To unlock that door at which the pup was still tearing would be to place herself in the power of whatever night prowler had entered. If the dog's yapping had not scared the superstitious burglar from the premises, then he would be a burglar on guard, and probably a burglar at least as well armed as herself. All their genuine plate and most of Cleona's jewelry were safe in the city. Was it worth while, would Tony thank her, to expose her own person to unknown danger in order to protect what valuables were in the bungalow? Abruptly she received notice that an intruder was really present, and that he had been by no means frightened to the extent of leaving. As has been said, four bedrooms, of which Cleona's was one, opened upon the living-room, and between that and the dining-room was an open archway hung with portieres. After clearing away her supper-dishes, Cleona had set the table for breakfast. Now she heard a great crash and jingle, as if someone had deliberately tipped up the heavy dining-table, allowing silver and dishes to slide to the floor. The bang of its mahogany legs as it fell back confirmed the supposition. With all her heart she wished that there had been a branch telephone in her bedroom, but there was not. To phone she must go outside her door. It sounded to her as if every piece of furniture in the dining-room was being violently flung from one side of the room to the other. Now the intruder's attentions had been advanced to the living-room. She heard a smash and tinkle that told of the destruction of the brown-shaded reading-lamp of which her husband was so fond. She was trembling, not so much with fear as because of her inability to cope with the situation. Her ears conveyed warning that the inside of her dear bungalow was being literally wrecked yet she still hesitated at opening the door and trying to stop the destructive work. Then Cleona became conscious of a new thing. It was an odor, and every moment it was growing stronger, a penetrating, almost overpowering smell of musk. Something whimpered about her feet. 
Looking down, she saw Snookums writhing there in agonies of puppyish supplication. He was a valiant watchdog no more, for his nose informed him of a terror unfit for his tender years to meet. The intruder's noisy operations had ceased at last. Cleona had a moment's wild hope that he might have smashed his way clear outside, but it was a hope quickly dissipated. Something was being dragged now, or was dragging itself across the floor of the living-room. It reached her door and paused. She crept into bed and sat with the covers pulled up, eyes fixed on the door in an agony of anticipation. There followed a snuffing noise, much the same as Snookums had been making, only louder. Then something reared up and came rasping down the whole length of the door and she could hear the wood follow in great splinters. Snookums squealed like a young pig and scuttled abjectly beneath the bed. Get away from that door or I'll fire!" Cleona's voice was so hoarse that she scarcely knew it for her own. She had the pistol beside her. The only reply was a sort of snort through the keyhole, and the knob was violently shaken. The rattling was accompanied by a low snarling sound of bestial rage, as if something were chewing at the knob and resented its hardness and refusal to part from the door. The odor of musk became nauseating. A moment later, the claws rasped down the door again. This time Cleona knew beyond chance of doubt that they were claws no less. In one place, where the wood was thinnest between panels, it was pushed out in a long splinter, and for a single instant one great whitish talon gleamed through, curved, needle-pointed, appalling in its vicious menace. At that sight Cleona for the first time really lost her head. What she should have done was to climb out the window, an easy thing, since it was only a matter of a few feet above the ground, run down the hill and raise an alarm in Carpentier. That might have been the course had the burglar turned out to be a burglar. But this, this thing of the midnight, that thrashed, snarled, and ripped clean through a door with its pale, enormous claw, it robbed her of capacity to think or reason. She screamed, jumped out of bed, and raised Rhodes' pistol. Without taking aim, she loosed its ten shots in the general direction of the door. The crashing rattle of the automatic was drowned in the tumult that answered from without. Shrieks like the scream of a mad stallion, and a furious thrashing against the weakened door mingled with the splintering sounds of wood ripped up by the chisel talons. The gun was empty. Cleona saw the door bulging inward and she did what many a woman would have done nearer the beginning, fainted and dropped to the floor, a pathetic heap of pretty silk and soft dark hair, one white arm flung out with fingers extended, as if grasping again at the useless pistol they had just released. End of chapter 10《By Gertrude Barrows Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Citadel of Fear. Chapter 11. The Red-Black Trail. A deep swoon is the anesthetic that Mother Nature offers her children when horror or pain becomes too great for bearing. Cleona's faint of terror passed into natural sleep, and when she at last opened her eyes the goblin-be-friendly moon had been ousted by the honest sun and the room was yellow-bright with reflected light from a morning all cheer and sunshine. 
she became aware that a small tongue was licking at her face, and that someone was pounding lustily on the locked door. For a moment her brain refused any explanation of why she should be crouching there on the rug, with a joyful puppy wriggling beside her. "'Mrs. Rhodes! Mrs. Rhodes, ma'am! Oh, my God! Are you killed?' The veil lifted from Cleona's memory, and shaking off Snookums, she struggled to rise. In doing so, one hand fell on some hard, irregular object, and looking she saw that it was the bright-colored image of that had been brought to her from Mexico. In her fall she must have brushed it from the table. The godling's flat face smiled up as benignly as ever, but the serpent-headed crook it had grasped was gone. Only a thin fragment of porcelain standing out on either side of the clenched fist showed where the staff had been broken off. In a dull, detached way, Cleona regretted this damage to Cullen's gift. She even thought of searching for the shattered pieces, with an idea that they might be cemented together again. But the hammering on the door was too insistent. Staggering up, she went to unlock it. By the condition of that door the events of the night had been no dream. The lock and one hinge held it partly shut, but the upper hinge had been torn out, splitting a long piece off the jamb. The door itself was split halfway down from the top, and, yes, there was the very place where the white claw had pierced through, and the round, neat holes drilled by her bullets. Cleona had time to observe these things, for at first the key refused to turn. Finally, however, the strained lock yielded, and with some trouble she got the door open. There stood Marjorie King, gasping with terror and anxiety. As soon as Cleona could entangle herself from the large embrace in which she was received, she stepped past, took one look about the living-room, and sat down with a gasp on the side of an overturned chair. As might have been expected, the place was no more than a spoiled wreck of the cozy, homelike room she had left the night before. But the disorder and breakage were by no means all. On the floor just outside her room was a great pool of black, half-coagulated blood and from that pool a line of similar dark blotches led through the arch into the dining-room. Cleona could not conceive how any creature that had bled so profusely could have lived even to drag itself from sight. The outer side of her door was literally ripped to flinders, and the door itself gashed and torn as though some mad carpenter had been at work there. The furniture was all upset, and most of it hopelessly smashed. "'Mrs. Rhodes,' questioned Marjorie, who was here last night?" Cleona shook her head. It ached, and she felt very dull and stupid. That odor of musk still permeated the air, though faintly. "'I don't know. Snookums, come here!' The pup had emerged from the bedroom and was sniffing cautiously at the horrible, blackening stuff on the floor. He wore a very chastened expression, quite unlike his usual devil-may-care cocksureness. Cleona took him in her lap and looked wistfully at the cook. "'I wish I'd minded you and gone into the city, Marjorie. Tell me, have you looked about the place at all?' "'Indeed, no, Mrs. Rhodes. I had the key you give me, and I come in through the front door and the veranda. Everything was right there, but when I seen this room, and when I seen that blood and that door, thinks I, Mrs. Rhodes has been murdered.' "'It's the mercy of heaven I wasn't,' conceded Cleona simply. Where is David? At the station. They have a big crate down there that must be the sundial Mr. Rhodes was ordering. And they operated on our boy last night, ma'am, and they do say he'll get well, after all. 
but, oh, ma'am, if you should see him, it would bring the tears to your eyes. So white, and—and—he knew me, ma'am, and—' She was wiping her eyes with the black cotton glove she carried, and Cleona realized that others than herself had been under a heavy strain the previous night, though of a different sort. "'Poor, poor Marjorie!' she cried impulsively. "'Forgive me, my dear, for a selfish, heedless little cat that I never asked you for the word of your son. Would you not like to return to the city that you may be near the poor lad?' "'No, indeed, ma'am,' Marjorie swallowed her sobs with sudden heroism. "'Leaving you alone last night was bad enough in all conscience, though Lord knows what happened here. I'm sure you ain't told me nothing yet. But right by you I stick now till Mr. Rhodes and your brother gets back. My goodness, they'll be wild when they know!' Cleona slipped on a kimono and slippers, started for the dining-room. The cook followed. Both women stepped carefully to avoid setting foot in the blood. The dining-room was worse than the other, if possible, and still the trail led on, through the pantry, the kitchen, the summer kitchen, and out the back door. That was clawed like Cleona's, and burst entirely from its fastening so that it lay flat. She reflected that the crashing in of that door must have been the sound that was ringing through her brain when the dog awakened her in the night. Over it the creature had evidently passed on its outward way, still shedding its gore with incredible generosity out into the yard, past the garage, crossed the green lawns and down the hill, and still Cleona followed the ghastly trail. She forgot that she was attired only in a nightgown, kimono and bedroom slippers. She was conscious of nothing but a horrible and growing curiosity as to what possible or impossible beast might lie at the trail's end. That it was dead seemed certain. No known creature could shed such gallons of blood and live long. The bare fact that no known creature could shed such gallons of blood, whether it continued to live or no, had not yet become apparent to her mind. Her usual acute brain was fogged by terror and the nerve-strain of a shock whose full effects she was yet to feel. Marjorie knew it, however, with a certainty that was rapidly turning her mind to all the horrors of the supernatural. But her best efforts to induce her mistress to return to the house were vain. Cleona told the cook to go back if she pleased. For herself, she was going right along now until she found it. At last the two women came to the foot of the hill and the boundary line of Rhodes Estate, Llewellyn Creek. And there the trail ended in a muck of crimson-streaked mud, as if the creature had rolled and splashed therein the ultimate convulsions of death. But of the creature itself there was no other sign. The far bank was green, peaceful, undisturbed. The trail simply ended in the creek bed, and the little stream flowed happily along, sparkling and chuckling as though it could have told an astonishing thing or two had it felt at all inclined. It suddenly occurred to Cleona that she had stood staring blankly at the crimson mud for a long, long time. She turned dull, troubled eyes upon Marjorie. Send. She stopped. Her throat was oddly constricted, as by an agony of unfelt grief. Mentally she was conscious of no emotion, but she experienced that feeling which overtakes a fever patient, as though mind and body were wholly detached from one another, or connected only by threads of gossamer, and those threads swiftly breaking. Again she tried to speak. Send Tawny. 
Then the green and gold world swirled into blackness, and had Marjorie not caught her she would have subsided into the brook. But the cook was a big strong woman. Lifting Cleona like a child, she bore the small, unconscious form up the hill and into the house. There was David, agape at the wreckage. "'Never mind staring!' she cried at him sharply. "'Go back down the hill as fast as ever you can. Have a doctor here, and phone in a telegram to Mr. Rhodes. You'll get him at the Hotel Metropole. I heard him tell that to this poor child yesterday. Tell him he's wanted at home as quick as he can get here. Move! Now!' David, though burning up with curiosity, deemed it wise to obey the keen urge in his wife's voice. He knew her for a capable woman, better able than he to meet emergencies, and as Marjorie laid her burden gently on the bed, she heard him go out of the door and down the steps in two long strides. "'Lord knows what will be the end of this,' she muttered as she removed Cleona's slippers, "'or what Mr. Rhodes will say or do when he comes home. It was the devil himself that was here last night, I'll swear to it. Not any creature that God ever made, no. The poor child, and her all alone here to meet it.' "'Come home quick,' read the wire. "'Mrs. Rhodes bad hurt. Burglars or something. David B. King.' David was not a person of tact. His message had been kept within the ten words he knew to be a telegram's proper length, and it fairly covered the situation as he knew it. But it drove the unlucky recipients into torments of speculative dread. The telegram was handed to Rhodes at the Hotel Metropole two hours after its receipt there, when the two men returned to the hotel for luncheon, and not bothering with the car, they caught the first fast express for home. At Carpentier they dropped from the train while it was still moving and made straight for the hill. To their amazement, as they ascended the winding, tree-shaded road, they began to pass people, men, women, and children. The road was private, and what they were doing here its owner could not conceive. Most of the faces seemed unfamiliar and they were too many by far to be only the inhabitants of Carpentier. Rhodes stopped to make no inquiries, though had he and Cullen not been too preoccupied to buy a paper on the train, the headlines would have offered an explanation. It was then mid-afternoon. David had notified the central police station early that morning, and the reporters had allowed no grass to grow under them nor waited for details. The bare story, as it stood, had been sufficient to attract every idle, horror-loving mortal who had the price of the half-hour's railroad journey to Carpentier. Glancing back, Rhodes and O'Hara perceived that more chattering, curious folk who had arrived on the same train with themselves were following. But the two asked no questions, even of each other. Shouldering their way through the throng, they at last reached the bungalow, only to be barred from its door by the blue-uniformed figure of a policeman on guard there. "'Get out of this!' His tone was that of an officer sorely tried. "'Can't you reporter fellows get enough copy without trying to butt into the house itself? Mrs. Rhodes can't see nobody.' "'She can see me,' said Rhodes between his teeth. "'I am her husband. What has happened here?' "'Never mind what's happened,' growled O'Hara. "'We've years to find that out, and Cleona may be wanting us.' Rhodes obeyed his orders dumbly. He felt suddenly very ill, and as he passed through the veranda he had to support himself by grasping at the chairs. Cullen followed him into the living-room, where they received a vague impression of wrecked furniture, 
restored to some semblance of order, or stacked in a corner, heaped over with a ruined pile of beautiful, blood-stained rugs. But their real attention was focused on the strange lady in a white uniform who met them with raised brows and inquiring, hostile eyes. In the back of his mind Rhodes knew that none of this was real. This was some other man's home, not his. His home was a quiet, untroubled place, with Cleona waiting there to smile a welcome, with no throngs of strangers trampling its lawns, no police at the door, no strange, white-capped women in uniform to meet him in a wrecked room stained with blood. And through the thought he heard his own voice asking, "'For God's sake, what has happened to my wife?' End of chapter 11《What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. <sighs> visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.